Hello and welcome. I'm Dr. Adam Dorsey, a psychologist in Silicon Valley, and I am the host of Super Psyched, a podcast dedicated to supercharging your life. Each episode contains fun, high-quality interviews with experts looking at psychology from all angles. Super Psyched is your tool to get more of what you want in your life and less of what you don't. What are the four magic words that will increase the likelihood of getting nearly anyone's attention? Any guesses? Here they are. Once upon a time. Why are these words so magical? And to answer this question with a question, isn't it incredible that a storyteller can capture a listener's attention and then, simply with words, cause the listener to enter a world and see vivid images? Storytelling, simply put, is dreamlike. George Lucas understood this when he wrote Star Wars. Steve Jobs understood this when he wrote his brilliant keynote addresses for Apple. And today's guest, Joel Ben Izzy, understands this as a storyteller, as an author, and as a coach. Joel is the real deal, and his life has been full of twists and turns that must have shaped his storytelling, and we will touch on this. He even created his own major of storytelling as a Stanford undergrad, and then he traveled broadly to learn powerful stories from great storytellers all over the world. Storytelling has far-reaching psychological implications and can help people harness deep and important narratives. And a wonderful fact is this. Stories can be healing both to the listener and the teller of stories. In fact, Stories have so many applications that they can even be helpful in business, where Joel has taught storytelling at establishments as diverse as Genentech, Facebook, the Federal Reserve Bank, Stanford University, and, appropriately, Pixar Animation Studios. So join Joel and me on a two-part series as we do a deep dive into the psychology of storytelling. Joel Ben Izzy, welcome to the first episode of Two on this special edition of Super Psyched. Thank you, and I am super psyched to be here. I'm so happy about this. You know, uh, I had the pleasure of rereading your books and re-listening to your stories that are available on Audible, and they just feel good in so many ways. They make me feel positively compelled from the psych front, of course, but they really tap into the spirit, they tap into ancestry, they tap into universal truths that really stick with me. I know I'm not alone in my assessment of this. My children feel the same way, my wife feels the same way. And over the years when I've asked people, do you know Joel Benizzi and his work? No one ever gives me a tepid response. Everybody gives me a very engaged, oh my God, I love Joel Benizzi. So One of my hopes is that your work becomes even more known. I give your book out routinely to the people I see, and their response is always the same, that it was a life-changing book. And I'm talking about The Beggar King, of course, as being one of the great psych books uh, available. So just wanted to thank you for being here and just give you a little nugget of how I hold you in my mind. Well, thank you. And I am so honored to be here. And for me that... um walking together with with stories and psychology it's a very natural connection it is and you are incredibly psychologically minded as the listener will note you like me are also married to a therapist and uh, i've had the pleasure of getting to know you personally and uh, you're the real deal you really do think psychologically and uh, have a way of seeing uh, just the multiplicity of phenomena And so that said, I've got to ask you, Joel, from a basic perspective, how did you get into storytelling? Well, that's a story. And there's all these variations of that story. Um, I'm sure. You know, I, I, I recently was going through papers. I've been taking some pandemic time to sort through stuff and found this, this report card from my second grade teacher that said, Joel has a great gift for telling stories and playing with puppets. I doubt he'll ever hold down a regular job. <laughs> She's right. <laughs> I guess it began there. You know, for me, stories kind of filled in a, a hollow place. I grew up in the suburbs of LA and it, it felt like the least magical place on earth. And I, I, I grew up sort of hungry for magic. And I remember my, uh, 
my mother had said, oh, yeah, you know, my, my father, your grandpa, Izzy, he used to tell about Chelm. I said, what's Chelm? She said, Chelm is this imaginary Jewish village where it, it snows all the time in Poland. It was filled with fools, but I did foolish things. I said, like what? And she said, no, I, I don't really remember exactly. But it was very funny. You would have liked it. And so I, I had this, this hunger growing on, this yearning for, for stories, for magic, for wonder, for a place where the streets weren't all straight, but where they curved and where there were little villages and strange characters. And, you know, some people come into storytelling just they grow up hearing stories. For me, it was the, the hunger for that really primed me to go out and look for the magic that stories can bring, for that sense of wonder, that sense of connection. I did end up finding books of Helm stories, Lot of the Goat by Isaac Bashevis Singer was the, the book that um, started all. It has, uh, it has illustrations by Maurice Sendek. Some of his yes, books. I have the book. It's great. Ah, I love his books. And it's all about Helm, this mythical Jewish village of fools, where people are so foolish they believe they're wise, and they sit stroking their beards, pondering the great questions like, 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 why is it? Why is it that the days seem longer in summer and shorter in winter? It's a good question. This is a question they ponder for a long time before they come to Chaim Yankel the Wise, who's the wisest of the Chamites. They say, Chaim Yankel, yes. Why is it the days are longer in summer and shorter in winter? Now, Chaim Yankel, as it turns out, is so wise that each night he goes to bed with two glasses by the side of his bed. One is a glass of water, the other is empty. And people, people say, Chaim Yankel, why? Why two glasses by the side of your bed? He said, I'll tell you, if I wake up and I'm thirsty, I drink the glass of water. But if I wake up and I'm not thirsty, I drink the glass without water. Anyway, so that's Chaim Yankel. He said, Chaim Yankel, why is it the days are longer in summer and shorter in winter? He said, you know what? Have you ever noticed in summer it's hotter? Yes. In winter it's colder. That's true. So in the summer, it's hot, the days expand. <laughs> winter, it's cold, they contract. So that's all by way of saying I discovered Chelm and this, this sort of mythical village of the Jewish imagination, a village in a world that's, that's been destroyed in so many ways, and yet this couldn't be destroyed because it was in the imagination, this world of Chelm. And so it was years later, of course, I didn't obviously say, oh, I'll become a storyteller. I had all kinds of other visions of myself and, and job ideas. At one point, I wanted to be a lawyer in high school. Then I got to college and I met the other pre-law students that said, I'm not going to do that. Right. And then, uh, and then I really determined that I would be a writer. I became very, very obsessed with, with the notion of, of writing the great American short story. And I would write draft after draft, and I'd, I'd start writing the, and I'd say, oh, that's hackneyed, that's cliched, I can't start that way. So the writing didn't work, and, and it was sort of, you know what it is, it was one, one disaster after another kind of led me to fall backwards into storytelling. Well, that's, that's fantastic. You know, I've seen the powers of, of, of stories showing up in so many places, and the words once upon a time seem to be magic to just about everyone on the planet, and yet very few people actually decide to pursue it as a profession. And I wonder, for, for the listener, why is it that we love stories so much? Why is it that the words once upon a time almost are hypnotic to us? I think... We look for a world to go to, to be able to see ourselves. It's like we're all nearsighted. I'm, I'm 60 years old and I have reading glasses that I put on reluctantly and then take off when I can. And, and, and there's a little bit of denial still about that. There's a way it's, we're too close to our lives to see it. And seeing it from a perspective of story gives us that bit of distance. It's a little bit like holding the menu at arm's length to look yeah. and say, oh, I can see myself in that story. And it also feels safe. You know, we feel held. There's that sense that somebody is holding something and they're going to share it with you, that wisdom. So within the words once upon a time or whatever opening you happen to use, we can relax. We're feeling held. 
And we're hearing from someone who's been there before, someone who's gone on this journey before, because we're, you know, let's face it, we're all in the midst of a journey at any time in our life. And at the moment, that journey seems more baffling and confusing for all of us in in many ways. You know, we're in the midst of this this pandemic and, you know, being inside a story is very, very difficult. So when you hear somebody say, you know, once upon a time or more likely um, yeah, about 15 years ago, the word about is kind of our modern grown up version of once upon a time. Once yes. upon a time cues, cues somebody to say there's a, a children's story coming. But when we say about, like I'll just give you some example. Um, you know, about, about five years ago, I was um, in Ireland at a little festival on the southernmost tip of Ireland, a little tiny island. In the southern part of the island, there's a little festival. And there's a little barn there called Luina Grania. All right, so without going into the story, when you hear the word about, there's... I'm taken in. That, I'm taken in immediately. And I'm, the words following, I saw everything you described. Yeah. I guess it's like the Wayback Machine. Um, the Wayback Machine. Remember Sherman and Peabody? I and, do. And let's go in the Wayback Machine. There's Absolutely. That, that helps pull us back. And we get that perspective. You know, I'm thinking about Jung in the collective unconscious. And for those who are not familiar with it, one of the things that psychoanalyst Carl Jung used to describe was that somehow genetically passed down to all of us were symbols and stories. And as you describe the idea of we look for a world to go into to see ourselves, it's almost like we've been there before. When we see Luke Skywalker looking at two sons thinking, I got to get off this planet. I've got to embark on my journey. We all feel it. That music, that vision of a young person thinking, I need to get out there. It's relatable, first of all, but then you talk about being held and contained and safe while we're living that we, uh, in a way that we don't get to when we're out in real time. But when we're in that liminal time, we know we're safe, no matter what comes our way, even if it's something really scary. And we might even delight in being scared and be titillated. And we might be laughing like crazy because of something ironic or funny that transpires. But there's this tapping into something that's deeply existent within us and simultaneously the knowledge that we're safe. It's living amongst a paradox so that it's real and it's not real. Yes. There and you're not there. And this is, and, and there's so many stories just below the surface. You know, as you were talking, I remember my wife and I broke into Jung's house. And I just said that to see the response in your face. Just wow. I was performing in, I was performing in, in Zurich. <laughs> and I thought, and then there's the Jung Institute. And I thought, oh, Jung lived just on the other side of this lake. So I thought, I said to Holly, <laughs> I said, Let, let's go. And we, we, you know, we figured we'd go to the town, um, Bollingen. We take the trek down to Bollingen. We walk around. We, we come out of the train station. And, uh, like, we think, all right, where do we go? And it's not like Jung's house has a sign to it. Right. For, for them, it was like he was this kind of weird guy who was here on the lake. <laughs> and, we, uh, and so we, we like, walked around. And, and as a traveler and storyteller, I'll talk to anybody. And I'll speak right. languages I don't understand. It opens a lot of doors and gets a lot of laughs. Totally. And yes. I would say in my pretend German, I, I, I don't speak German, but it's pretend German. Bitte, wo ist der Hausbeast Karl Jung? Which sounds like it could be German. And then finally somebody said, I speak little English. But who do you look for? I said, ah, Carl Jung's house. And like, he brought me into this little pub and gathered around. He said, anybody know Carl Jung? He said, ah, he brought out a phone book. He said, look. No, nobody named Jung. <laughs> so as we're wandering around, somebody saw us and said, are you looking for Jung's house? We said, yeah. He said, nobody here knows Jung but me. I remember when he was here. Let me show you my photographs. And he had all these photos he took, like he would sail on the lake up to Jung's house and take pictures of him. 
And he said, here, it's down this path. You can climb over the fence. And we climbed over the fence and, and went and posed up against the carvings. Anyways, when you said Jung, I thought of that. To me, this is the beauty of, of stories. We are all so rich in stories. And we, we don't realize they're just beneath the surface at any given moment. And it takes just the smallest amount to trigger. I mean, so you, you have listeners, you know, we have listeners listening to the podcast. You know, if I was to say to any of your listeners, hey, tell me a story. They think, exactly you know, that sort of like, well, I don't know. I, I've I got nothing. Thing, and I'm a professional, right? Sure. But, but if I say to your listeners, take just a moment right now and think about a place that you used to love to go to. Probably the first one that comes to mind is a, is a great one. And let yourself imagine going there. And, and maybe you're going there at a, at a particular time of day, at a particular time of year. And maybe, maybe as you go, you see yourself approaching it. And you, you notice, like, what, what might you see or hear? And as you get there, well, what do you smell? And maybe you taste it. Maybe you see someone. And what do you feel? There's so many of these, these details. So let, let yourself go and explore and see who it is you meet or what you see there. Right? So then, then people come back from something like this and they say, oh, my God, I haven't been there in like 30 years. Right. You know, where did you go, Adam? I went to Arashiyama, Monkey Mountain in Kyoto, where you walk up this oh, hill. Oh, yeah, take me there. Let's hear it. Sure. Uh, it's, it's this beautiful river in kind of what is, appears to be old Japan. Uh, you get off the train, you walk across a bridge, you see a river, and you see old-fashioned uh, architecture and people dressed in old-fashioned garb. It's not quite Williamsburg like we have in the United States where people dress up in colonial, but it's beautiful. And then you, there's this mountain that you can climb. And at the top of the mountain, very surprisingly, there are a ton of monkeys. And the monkeys are really, really funny. And it's usually damp. Uh, there's a nice kind of smell of, of trees and mud and overlooking you see can sometimes see mist and it's just very romantic it's it's the japan that everybody wishes to see and then you've got monkeys which just brings a, a you know a modicum of hilarity to it and it's uh it's wonderful and i used to actually in the summer <laughs> it was kind of uncool but but i was i used to live there and i used to swim in that river at times so that was a very special place for me ah god that sounds great so so look what happens if, with a few words. Yeah, you go beneath the surface, and now you have a story, and it's the the nature of story that you don't actually have a story until you tell it. Right, right. And because otherwise, it's a it's a memory inside you, and it's um, that's a it's a a treasure that you hold, and when you 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 don't have it unless you give it away. I mean, the economics of this are weird, right? You, you travel with stories. And you are carrying them from one place to another. They weigh exactly nothing, but they, they fill you up. Absolutely. You, you don't have it till you give it away. And once you give it away, you actually have more, right? Because you said this, and then I thought of, oh, I remember this river I used to swim in and when I, in the summer in Santa Cruz. And, and suddenly it's there. And, and what I find is people are so rich in these stories and memories. And it's not necessarily a story per se, but it's a, it's a memory. And I think part of the work that we storytellers do is help to remind people of the well. What's and this the well? is a concept I, I learned from my wife. My wife and I just celebrated our 30th anniversary um, this past week. I remember on the day of our wedding, it was really like a magnificent day that had just was so rich and people and friends and love. And I remember thinking, you know, I, I cannot take this all in. It's too much. And she said, oh, you know, we actually have to think about this as though we're filling up a well. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's a well filled with these friends, with this love. It's, it's filled with memories. And, 
And this is a well that we can come back to for the rest of our lives. And I really think, that, I mean, and that, that has been very true to be able to, to think back, to remember that. And I really think that um, storytelling does just that. And I think that most of us go through our lives and we are filling a well hmm. constantly, our own well every day. We just don't always remember to stop and look into it and to see what those treasures are that we have to share those memories. I think it's especially important now, you know, at a time when people are, are, are shut in and the outside world just isn't open for the most part. And the chance to sort of say, well, what are, what are my treasures here? Mm-hmm. What are the memories? I can go with just a simple once upon a time or about 15 years ago or back when I lived in Japan. Sure. I used to. You know, the, the form of a, of a story is, I mean, it, back, back to Jung, right? I think there's, a, there's a, been a progression that we recognize the story. And I'll just, just go through some of those manifestations. Jung talked about the collective unconscious, and um, it was from his notions that Joseph Campbell sort of right. developed the idea of the hero's journey. Right. And the hero with a thousand faces and sort of took this and made it a little more accessible, tracking these archetypes through history. Then Campbell did this and there was a there was actually a uh, a, a wonderful writer named Christopher Vogler. He was an executive at Disney at the time and he had been reading Campbell's works and he said, "Oh my god, this sounds exactly like what we do in movies, right? Maybe I'll just write this up in the form so everybody can understand. And he he wrote it back in the day, right? He wrote it up and, and then faxed it to somebody, and he said, "Well, oh, I think there are like these sort of stages of the hero's journey that goes into a, you know, into the movies we make." And uh, you know, it was like a, a fifteen-page fax, and he he faxed it to somebody, and they faxed somebody else, and within a day. It was on every desk in Hollywood. And they'd said, yeah, there's this kind of pattern we recognize as the, the hero's journey, right? There's the everyday world, right? That's your once upon a time. Sure. And then the call to adventure, something happens. You talked about Star Wars, you know? Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope. Mm. And then usually refusal of the call. Usually the hero will say, well, you know what? No, this really, I'm not, I'm not going to. Not my thing. Right? And then there's the meeting of the mentor. There's Obi-Wan Kenobi. There's crossing the threshold. And he wrote a wonderful book called The Writer's Journey that talks about how these play out. And it goes through these stages. But from a storytelling perspective, we can think of it as there's stages we recognize that make up a story. There would be a once upon a time, every day, every day, every day, and then one day, because of that, because of that, because of that, because of that. Sure. Lots of because finally, of that. And ever since then. And ever since then. Those are kind of the turning points we recognize as a story. So when you're in Japan, you said, I used to go there and, and you know, once upon a time, or you know, back when I was in Japan, you know, every day I would do this and this. And if you got to the end then one day moment, then it would launch us into a story. But to me, these are the most magical words in a story. And then one day. And, then and I one think day. part of the magic is because stories are about change. This is where stories and psychology, I think, join together mm-hmm. because stories are about change. And right. how we change. Transformation. And there's an establishing of the everyday world that we need to know before we get to the change. Right? You can't get to a change without somehow knowing what you're changing from sure. and then how do we how do we navigate that change and then something comes and we somehow end up in a place that like they say in ireland oh the same only different <laughs> Which I always loved. Um, but but what happens is we come full circle because the story will go back circle and whereas on one hand it looks the same on the other hand it's different right so dorothy right. And the Wizard of Oz. Sure. Right. That's in, in Christopher Vogler's book, The Writer's Journey. He, he uses the Wizard of Oz as, to illustrate Perfect all the progression. Points, and then also shows them in Star Wars and the Titanic and in Pulp Fiction. I mean, you can see it in almost any movie 
the same the same hero's journey so dorothy ends up back in kansas which on one hand is the same but and on the other changed. hand it's completely different because she's changed so stories are what guide us on that change and spoiler alert folks uh one of the things i'll be asking joel about is how he faced cancer came out of it rendered mute after uh and was able to uh cope even though he was mute for for quite some time and then was able to get his voice back uh, so he re did re-enter kansas and it was different when he re-entered it but we'll save that one for later but uh in the meantime, I must ask this. One of the things that we know about trauma is that when we go through a trauma, it's as if we are sitting in a chair that has supported us maybe a hundred times. And the hundred and first time we sit on the chair, it breaks and we get badly, badly injured. And we lose trust in a structure, both physically and psychologically, that used to support us. And in the healing of trauma, one of the ways that we can look at it is that we put those pieces back together and create a new chair, perhaps a stronger chair, certainly a different chair than it was before, like um, Kintsugi in Japan, how they put gold in between uh, broken parts of ceramic and make it more beautiful, but really emphasize the break. But as I think about storytelling, it seems like one of the perfect venues for attending to trauma. And I wonder what your thoughts are about the psychological impact of creating a coherent, perhaps even a cohesive story uh, for things that might be, have been previously misunderstood or fragmented. What are the psychological powers of storytelling? That's a great question. Let me, let's back up just a bit and define what story is. I'm all ears. Maybe we should do that, right? Lots of definitions for it. I'll tell you the one I like to use which is a story is a problem recounted in a way that makes us curious and makes us care and causes us to somehow move. So another way to say it, it's a problem recounted in a way that reaches us in the head, in the heart, and in the gut, or some combination of those three. And it's interesting that you cite those three, by the way, because those three are the three locations in our body that have the most neurons present. That's, okay, that's so. where our storytellers live. Uh, Head, heart, gut. Mm. But key in that word is problem. Right? Without a problem, we don't have a story. And the, um, you must know the Bluma Zagarnik. Oh, Zagarnik effect. Sure. Yes, the Zagarnik effect. So Bloom is a Garnick was a contemporary of Freud in Vienna and less well-known, partly probably because she was a, a woman. And she, it said that one day she was in this cafe in Vienna, you know, these Viennese cafes, very fancy, elegant, mm. and she's waiting to place order. And the waiter goes around, takes everybody's orders, but doesn't write a thing down. And then comes back in a few minutes later and said, here's your cafe meat schlag. <laughs> the this is cafe meat schlag, skinny foam only. And, and, then, and then comes to Bluma and, and says, may I take your order? And Bluma says, wow, you just brought everybody at that table their order, but you didn't write anything down. How did you remember? He said, that's my job. She said, yeah, but like that person there. And she pointed somebody with their back, like, what did they have? He said, I don't know. He said, as soon as I do it, I, I forget. <laughs> he probably said it with a German accent as opposed to the vaguely Romanian accent I'm using, but the point still stands. <laughs> so he, said, <laughs> he said, that's, that's my job. And, uh, <laughs> And then she got interested in this. She said, huh, you know, what happens is when something is unresolved, we listen to it and take in information at a higher level. Now, this is just giving a name to what students have found when they've been cramming for tests. For exactly. Everything. You memorize it and you like try to just pack it in your mind. And I remember well. I even remember packing the Zygarnik effect in for my licensure exam. Oh, wow. <laughs> Very so, ironic. So she said, but there's something that happens when you hear something unresolved, like do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti, do. But if you just hear do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti, 
it engages you in a particular way or it, it almost like, it, it, it's it's almost um aggravating in a way it's like it's it's evocative it's please you've got to finish this i can't i can't just sit here and, without this being resolved fact, try this as an exercise your audience can try it too i invite all you out there in podcasting land the zagarnik effect you want to experience this yes listen to this and don't respond <laughs> Exactly. And that and that opens up something in it until we hear. <laughs> and so what happens is the Zagarnik effect is key in stories and storytelling because once we've had that once upon a time, every day, about 15 years ago, back when I lived in Japan, right? once we have that, every day this is the norm, then that then one day induces the Zagarnik effect. Something doesn't fit, and we want to resolve it. There's and an incongruity of some kind. There you go. And and we're trying to say, all right, how does this fit together? I don't see how, how does my mind put it together. On one hand, it's it's agonizing because we want to know, right? Definitely. And on the other hand, we enjoy. And what it does is it it, it develops with a relationship, because if someone is telling us the story. So it's not just the story, it's the person, it's the connection. Because I think existentially, you know, we can feel alone. Definitely. And stories help us feel connected. Ooh, what a great rationale for the existence of stories. So, so let me get back to your question now that I've sort of given, you know. Yeah, and the question originally was, how can it, be, how can it help us with psychological healing? Right, and trauma. So. In that sense, trauma, as you describe it, is and then one day, right? And then one day it happened and it was bad. And the question is, how do stories help us heal from trauma? And I think there is something about being able to relive it, for one, without being destroyed, that can be healing. Mm -hmm. That sense of being able to tell it and say, I am telling it because I'm, I'm, I'm somehow mastering this experience. I'm controlling it. So you're taking ownership of your story, even to recount the trauma in and of itself. Now, of course, to recount the trauma can be re-traumatizing. Right. But to be able to go from there and be able to make something of it. And that is where we get to the meaning of the stories. I mean, I think we are meaning-making animals, and we like to figure out, what does this mean? What can I learn from this? How can I change? And if we can connect the trauma, the suffering that we've been through, and we all go through, because this is just inherent in life, and the trauma that we get passed down from generation to generation, because that's part of life too, if we can make that meaning, that redemption, and we say, ah, this was hard, but it wasn't for nothing. Then that gives life meaning. Right. And that's where we get to in that story structure, that story spine. And ever since then, you know, we have known, mm-hmm. we have learned, and that's why. And it, you know, the stories. They can be a huge problem. They can be a small problem. But it's that little, it's, it's the arc of change. And possibly, ever since then, I have become stronger and better adapted to X, Y, or Z. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's the hope. I think that's what you therapists do. That is certainly, yeah, that is one of our aims. Yeah. To, to help people. And this is, again, just back to the movies. So many times we'll see someone fail a test at the beginning of a movie and succeed at the end. Right. So I'm going to pivot in a big way. That's just wonderful stuff, first off. And the pivot is this. I know you do a lot of corporate work. And I also know that one of the all-time great storytellers was none other than our local Steve Jobs. He could get up tell a story about the new product, the problem it solved, and it was compelling. And I wonder 
at people's jobs? What professions might be aided through storytelling? Wow, well, that's that's a good question. And he was he was amazing. Um, amazing. I'll tell you the sorts of things I've I've worked with. Um, sure. I tend to see sort of both corporate and for nonprofit. Too. I do a lot of work with nonprofits and organizations. You might put those types of stories into three categories. There's origin, impact, and vision. Steve Jobs was particularly strong in creating vision stories. Right? Oh, I see. So and these are three basic types of stories, origin, impact, and vision. Got it. That's right. And he, he, he handled the vision stories. He handled the vision stories. And I remember him making a speech and saying, so we're introducing three new products today. It is a phone, it's an iPod, right. and it's a computer. And we finally realized this was one, and this was the introduction of the iPhone. It was amazing. And, and as he said, you make people need things they didn't know they wanted. Yep. So, but, but those different types of stories, you can sort of see them as, as a set. And like the way that I started this was um, I got called by Hewlett Packard. Um, back when it was Hewlett Packard, and it was a much sort of more robust. It was an company. incredible had company. Separated, and they called and said, "You know, we have all these consultants that are going and trying to make presentations, but when they do, they end up speaking this kind of engineering language, and nobody quite knows what they say." Right. Can you sort of help us look at their stories and help them communicate and find their own collection of stories? And this was great because they were there were people from all over the world. And, uh, and had these rich stories they just weren't using. They, they weren't going to their well. So with them, I said, well, let's, let's understand what Hewlett Packard was about. And this was the time when Bill and Dave were both still alive. And we started to look at the story and say, well, let's see, what do we got? Bill and Dave were friends at Stanford. And the scene is almost described of it's the end of the, the, end of the quarter. And their professor, Terman, is saying, now, I am telling you all that in the next few weeks, You'll be getting job offers from the top engineering firms in places like New York, Philadelphia, and Baltimore. But I'm telling you that the future of engineering is right here in California. Mm, that seems ridiculous at the time. And what's more, he said, the future of engineering is going to be a three-way partnership. It's like a stool with three legs. One is education, one is business, one is government. They all have to work together. Cooperation will be as important as competition. Like bell rang, class left out, except for Bill and Dave, and they said, hey, we like this. We want to do something. Uh, what should we do? And he said, uh, you know what? Go invent something. They said, can we have a lab here on campus? They said, no, campus is crowded. Why don't you go up to Palo Alto? Like, find a place to, che to rent. It's cheap there in Palo Alto, right? This Back in those days. Um, and, and they got a garage, and they started building things. And the first thing they built actually was a... Uh, a kind of a toilet plunging mechanism. <laughs> it didn't work very well, and it was just a fail. And then, then they invented something that did work, which everybody hated, which was a foul line detector for a bowling alley in Palo Alto. Right, it was a little beam of light, and it would see if anybody like crossed that line. When oh, they got you. Buzz. Who wants that when you're bowling? So it failed. Right. So right. they went back and tried more things, and eventually came up with the oscilloscope. Disney purchased the oscilloscope for use in Fantasia, and suddenly they had a business, and they said, my God, look at this. This is amazing. We got a, we got a business. We call it Bill and Dave Electric. Or how about mm. Dave and Bill's Electric? And you, know, you know what? Let's call it Packard Hewlett. Or how about Hewlett Packard? And say, no, you know what? The partnership, the friendship matters much more than the name. Let's flip a coin. It's that important. And they flipped a coin, and ostensibly Hewlett won the coin toss. But in fact, we all did. And they say Silicon Valley, as we know it, was born of a hyphen. So uh, from, a, from an origin story like that's that, an origin story. you see all the values of Silicon Valley. You can see this thinking outside the box, right? Go off the campus, find a garage. You can see fail early and learn from your failures, right? You can see right. the importance of partnership and thinking in non-traditional collaborations. And so what I was doing with Hewlett-Packard was working to help them think about the stories they have to tell and how they could connect the values of HP to the clients they were with and then develop their own storytelling skills to be able to frame problems 
using metaphors and stories so that they made it accessible. And again, it's it made it just far enough away to be able to see it with those metaphors. Wow. It's so compelling. And that's led to just all kinds of other um, work with different companies, a lot with nonprofits, a lot of um, financial companies, interestingly enough, which is not something I was interested in. Sure. But um, somebody came up to me and said, oh, Joel, I... I know who you are. We, we listen to all your CDs and tapes. We listen again and again with my kids on the ship. And they went on and on. I said, that's great, but what do you do? And he said, oh, I uh, I head up this organization. It's called um, NCCA, which stands for National Community Capital Association. And they went into this explanation mm. with numbers and anagram, acronyms. And, and we're, we're not a bank, but we seem like a bank, but we had sort of 501c3. And, it's, and I said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute you have got the cold dead fish problem sure and he said what's that i said it's like if you had the best sushi in town but you put up a, a sign that said cold dead fish oh my gosh he said that's exactly what it is he said and the thing is we're, we're non-profit Our organizations do great things this is what we do is we help minorities and first-time borrowers to get loans and we're those kind of credit places that make it possible. I mean, this changes lives. The people in my organization and, and all our member organizations, they do phenomenal work. But you ask anyone to tell you about it, and what you get is numbers and acronyms. He said, why don't you come and help me figure out how to tell the story? And this, you know, this began my work with what became Opportunity Finance Network, got them to change their, their long, wordy name. And that's led to all sorts of work, really finding ways to make people financially healthier, and to begin to take these sort of dry, complicated concepts and help people understand them and make it meaningful to people. Because the stories are just below the surface. You said it so well when you said we're meaning-based creatures, we're meaning-based animals, and that's so spot on. I was remember listening to coffee and selling it and how it could be seen as a commodity and it doesn't cost very much. It could be seen as a product. It costs a little bit more. Uh, as a service, a little bit more still, but if it's seen as an experience, like overlooking Big Sur in the perfect spot, people would pay the most for it. And stories are experiences. They may be imaginal, but they are experiences. And it's what brings people in emotionally. I remember a, a great scene in Mad Men where Don Draper, the ad man, was selling a product called the carousel. If you can just YouTube it, you will cry. It's the most beautiful sales pitch of all time because it brings in every story and emotion into what's ostensibly just a slide projector. And he basically explains why it exists in story form. And I think that organizations, executives, teachers for sure need stories. I think I hear about my son coming home saying, dad, I learned this great story from my teacher. And these stories stay. Um, and then, of course, in, in the medical profession or in the healthcare profession, stories can really help people when they're coping with a new diagnosis or a new lifestyle change of how am I going to integrate using the CPAP? And well, I've got a story about it, somebody who uses CPAP just like you and is having difficulty taking it in. So stories really, they're the highest, highest of our values, really, when you think about what humans care about. And this is, you know, some of the, I mean, as you talk, I'm thinking of, of I've been so lucky with whom I worked with, um, worked with doctors to sort of help them develop their, their storytelling skills for, for developing that compassion and connection, which is so key in medicine. And it's, it's so often bred out of doctors in the course of med school. And um, with coffee, I'd collected coffee stories around the world. Coffee and stories. You speak of that you talk about drinking that cup of coffee overlooking big sur mm -hmm. i think oh you know i went to go learn where coffee comes from because i was working with a company that uh called sustainable harvest they're their coffee importer but they would channel the profits back to the villages that do all the work and and as i learned with coffee they said why don't you come with us to mexico and I went and traveled way down to the south of Mexico <laughs> and to the, the sort of the southernmost airport and then way out towards Chiapas. And uh, we went to a town called Nueva Palestina. And the, uh, the nature of all coffee stories, there's at least like three hours of 
of the winding bad road in the back of a truck. And here we woke up at what felt like the Bates Motel. <clears throat> we were so groggy at like four in the morning. All we wanted was coffee and we had none. We had none, just this sort of decaf crystals and warm water that someone had given us. But finally, we, we go and we take this truck winding up, 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 up the mountainside in the back of a truck. And we go and these people have been up early working and they invite us to help pick the coffee. And what I remember is, is we went to work for what fair trade coffee prices pay, which pays more. And a group of about 15 of us worked for about an hour and I think altogether we earned maybe $43. So it's about $3 an hour, maybe, right? Sure. But then we went in this little hut. And in this little, little hut, it was kind of dusty, dirt floor. And they prepared this whole meal for us. And there was this, this old woman making tortillas and sort of laughing and talking in Spanish and joking. And she, she was making these tortillas. What I remember is this. There was a tin roof. And there was a hole in that tin roof about the size of a quarter. And a beam of light went through that hole down to the floor. And as we spoke, you could see the beam of light slowly moving across the floor. I looked at her talking and I thought, wow, I'm going to go away from this. They're going to go back to their work, getting up early, picking the coffee cherries, harvesting them, cooking tortillas on this, this open stove. And when I get to Big Sur and drink that cup of coffee you were talking about, it is going to be that much richer because I know its origin. Uh, I, I, as you're talking about stories, I also am just seeing them as the opposite of curses. They are blessings. They are things that people can carry with them during these cold days, during difficult times, and perhaps even during joyous times to make them even more joyous. These stories can really act as, as magnifying glasses for meaning. And there are just so many places where stories belong and how we need, we need stories. And I'm thinking about generations of people who are bereft of their own narratives. They don't know where they come from. Maya Angelou once famously said, if you don't know where you've come from, you don't know where you're going. And one of the things I've noticed and appreciate about you, Joel, is that you have, you have really made it your business to know your culture, your heritage, your ancestry through stories. And I'm wondering what those stories have taught you about who you are and where you're from and where you're going. Wow. It's, I love that Maya Angelou quote. She also, said, um, she also said, people forget what you said, they'll forget what you did, but they'll never forget how you made them feel. I love that quote too, and that's really apropos of our discussion about stories, isn't yeah. it? I think that that I mean, some of what I'm sharing here now is this sort of this need to make meaning. Certainly, my Jewish culture, which I've you know, which the stories for me were a way back to connect with my Jewish culture, which I'd left when I was young or or rebelled against because I had really a you know terrible Jewish education when I was a kid. Um, but well, it wasn't all bad. I, I probably brought something to that as well. But it, it, it's uh, there's a way that it teaches one to make meaning from difficulty, from what's painful. Jews have become pretty good at that. So I think that that it's taught me to laugh. That has been certainly key for me. And it's taught me to take ideas and turn them over. Yeah. And here you are in this evolution, having a less than auspicious beginning with, uh, with your Jewish education and a stepping away from and a return to with a great deal of energy, a great deal of zeal uh, and, and knowledge and spelunking into caves, learning about uh, Jewish culture and who you are and where you're from. Uh, how has it informed who you are today? As a Jewish man, I think it's um, given me the sense that I have a path, and that if I can hold on to these decent values, to try to be a mensch, which is really the most hoped for Jewish value, right. to be a decent, good person in the world, um, not a not a celebrity, just to be a mensch. Um, that that will 
lead to a good ending. You know, will lead to good friendships, will lead to health. In Jewish tradition, there's the notion of tikkun olam, which is repairing the world. And the world is so in need of repair. And I think that, you know, every one of us finds the way we can, we can do that. I, I think for me, the, the stories, I suppose they're what stories have often been. It's about how can I heal? What can I do? Because I, I, you know, I, I won't say that I, I've certainly, I've, people have had much more difficult lives than me, but my, my background, my childhood was, was not easy. I had, you know, inherited trauma from generations mm-hmm. coming to me um, and a lot of illness and no money and just the real, a lot of, it was not an easy childhood. Um, but maybe the stories that I tell help me think, you know, there's a way that I can make life richer and better for others and that I have gifts to give. And I can aspire to be a mensch yeah. and that will be my path and a connection to my past as well. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. Joel Ben Izzy, thank you so much for sharing your treasures with us. Uh, I have enjoyed talking to you. Just, it's been pure joy. And thank you so much for having me. I, I hope that for you and the folks out there listening to the podcast, this helps you find and share your own stories. I think that we will have been successful in doing that, Joel. Thanks. Thank you for listening. And please note, the conclusion of this episode will air next week. I realize this is a cliffhanger, but hey, that's what storytelling is all about. Make sure you come back to hear the rest of what this master storyteller, Joel Ben Izzy, has to say. This is Dr. Adam Dorsey thanking you for listening to Super Psyched. If you know anyone who might like it or who might benefit from listening, share it. And if you like the episode, please hit subscribe 